0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with increasing pressure from the White House on Israel, with Defence Secretary Austin meeting with his Israeli counterpart, urging the IDF that, quote, protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative, as Palestinian civilian casualties approach 20,000 dead, mostly children. Joining us is Dov Waxman, Professor and Chair of Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's also been a visiting professor at Tel Aviv University, bar Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israeli Identity, Defending, Defining the Nation, Israel's Palestinians, the Conflict Within, Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. Then we look into today's major doctrinal shift in the Catholic Church, with Pope Francis approving blessings for same-sex couples and divorced and remarried couples. Joining us to explain this shift and Pope Francis's crackdown on right-wing American bishops is Joshua McElwee, the news editor of the National Catholic Reporter, and their former Vatican correspondent. His reporting and feature writing have earned numerous awards from the Catholic Press Association of the US and Canada, and have been featured in Vatican Insider, the Irish Catholic, and the Official Catholic Directory. He is the author of 10 Things Pope Francis Wants You to Know About the Family. Then finally, we'll assess what kind of deal Biden can make with the Republicans who are holding hostage money for Ukraine while demanding changes to border policies that will anger the Democratic base and erode Latino support. Joining us is Aaron Reichling melnick Policy Director at the American Immigration Council, where he directs the Council's administrative and legislative advocacy efforts and works on border and immigration court issues. We will discuss his article at The Hill, Trump 2.0, a second term, would see him pick more and uglier fights on emigration. And joining us now is Dov Waxman, who's a professor and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he also directs the UCLA's YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, bar Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University, and is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israel Identity, Defending Defining the Nation, Israel's Palestinians, The Conflict Within, Trouble in the Tribe, The American-Jewish Conflict Over Israel, and most recently, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dov Waxman.
1: Thank you for having me back on the program.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Dov. And it seems that there's a lot of pressure on Israel now from the White House, and obviously Biden himself is under pressure from his own democratic base for uh, his hugging of uh, Netanyahu and he's just dispatched uh, his Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to Israel where Austin said uh, in the presence of his counterpart, the Defense Minister he said in urging the IDF that quote, protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. So Is this likely to ease things in terms of Biden's eroding support amongst his own base, uh, not to mention the outrage around the world?
1: I don't think so. I think, I mean, the Biden administration from quite early on was counselling, you know, sending that message uh, to the Israelis about the need to, um, you know, uphold international law when it comes to uh, the war and to minimise Palestinian civilian casualties and although they've become more explicit, more public, at least in making those appeals and making those demands. um, I think the perception remains Uh, among parts of the Democratic base and around the world that, you know, that's just words, that's empty rhetoric essentially. And that as long as the Biden administration continues to support the war and shield Israel from international pressure, like vetoing the the, uh, resolution in the United Nations Security Council last week, then effectively in the eyes of much of the world and certainly in the Middle East, the administration is complicit in what it perceived to be Israeli war crimes. And I don't think, you know, dispatching um, senior members of the administration and, you know, making these uh, public statements is going to really uh, change that impression as long as the president himself and his administration continue to support the war and continue to refuse to call for a ceasefire.
0: Well, at this point, the death toll in in Gaza is approaching 20,000, mostly children. So that's a pretty appalling number.
1: It is, and I think it really um, underlines the fact that whatever the Biden administration have been telling Israel about the importance of minimizing civilian casualties hasn't really changed the uh, the way in which Israel's conducting this war, the rules of engagement, the uh, decisions it's making in terms of what it targets for airstrikes um, and, um, you know, the kinds of um, ordnance, the kind of munitions uh, that Israel is using. So um, the fact is uh, that, you know, a astonishingly, a terribly, unacceptably high number of Palestinian casualties uh, have already happened. And it looks likely there will be even more casualties as, as the war goes on. Um, that fact cannot really be changed by the you know, public messaging. It's not just a question of uh, messaging. It's, it's the, the mere fact that um, as Israel conducts this war, there really is no way to, uh, to do so in a way that's not going to result in a large loss of life. But it seems that the decisions that Israel's is making about the use of force um, the, and the question of kind of proportionality um, is really, you know, one that's leading to even higher numbers of Palestinian civilian casualties than would, than would perhaps be the case if, if a different military was conducting this war.
0: So President Biden was asked by the press at a recent press conference, he was asked about the flooding of the tunnels in Gaza, and Biden said, with regard to the flooding of the tunnels, I'm not at lib. And then he said, well, there are assertions being made that there's no hostages in any of these tunnels, but I don't know that for a fact. And frankly, he avoided the question, but sort of stumbled. It just feels like, this is a real burden on him, this situation. I mean, he he really identified himself so closely with Israel going over there immediately after the hideous massacre and butchering of uh, Israeli civilians on the, October the 7th. But now he's, he doesn't seem to be very resolute. Do you think this is really weighing on him, Doug?
1: Well I think he um is obviously attuned to um American public opinion and the fact that the you know polling data shows that there's growing uh, support among Americans in general for a ceasefire especially among Democrats. And obviously, with the you know November 2024 election uh, kind of coming up, and he's already apparently um, upset, frustrated by his low approval rating. So I'm sure this is weighing on him. I'm sure he is being told about the damage this might do to his re-election prospects, particularly with key. Uh, in, in certain back, battleground states like Michigan. So he's paying a political price for his uh, kind of very resolute uh, support of Israel domestically. But he's also, the United States is also increasingly paying a price around the world uh, for this and is increasingly appearing as the kind of outlier. Even other you know, um supporters of Israel, supporters of the war, like Britain, late like Germany, late like France, they've all gradually shifted their their um positioning in recent weeks. And and in the case of France is now publicly demanding an immediate ceasefire, and the French and the Germans are called, talking about a uh, sustainable ceasefire. So the president himself who who you know through putting himself so closely at the beginning with Israel and and, and something that I think, made sense at that point in time when when that was certainly what the Israelis really wanted to hear was, you know, th- those words from the president. And it made made a great deal. And I think it did give the president and his administration some leverage behind the scenes. This kind of bear hug strategy, I think, did pay off in some respects, particularly when it came to um, getting the Israelis to allow more humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip, and also eventually to allow fuel into the Gaza Strip, um, and it, you know, so there's and now uh, most recently opening up the Israeli crossing into the Strip to allow more humanitarian aid. So when it comes to the provision of humanitarian aid, I think the Biden administration's and the president's kind of bear hug strategy has worked, but. When it comes to the conduct of the war and the the amount of force used and the kind of way that Israel, the IDF is conducting this war, it seems that In that respect, the administration has been less influential and increasingly they are now identified as supporting what in the eyes of many people are war crimes. And I think that is something that obviously is going to disturb the president, because at this point he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, He knows that his administration is paying a price, but he also knows that if he was to more directly confront Netanyahu over this it may not make any difference netanyahu may well use the biden president uh, biden's uh, criticism or opposition as a way of appealing to his own right wing base um and so i think the administ- the president is aware that even if he came out now and demanded a ceasefire the israelis might simply ignore those demands
0: so is netanyahu as some of his critics have suggested In effect, this war is a lifeline for him, that he's so unpopular. But at the same time, does he have an incentive to end it? Uh, It doesn't sound like it. It, It,
1: No, it doesn't. I mean, I think the the, uh, at least where the polling at the moment, and and it hasn't changed for for weeks now, shows that the Israeli public continue to hold him ultimately responsible for uh, what took place on October the 7th for the Hamas attack. Um, They've also been very critical of his handling of the war since then, particularly his failure, unwillingness to meet uh, with the families of the Israeli, uh, of the hostages who are held captive in the Gaza Strip. Just uh, recently, he didn't come out and announce the news about the uh, killing of the three Israeli hostages. There's a lot of criticism in it is he's deeply unpopular. And according to the polls, if there was elections held now, his party would dramatically lose many of its seats and would be ending up in the opposition. Um, so his only hope, to kind of salvage his political career um, is to ultimately to continue this war and hope that he will reach a successful conclusion that will mean the the defeat of Hamas. Um, That raises a very troubling question as to, you know, given Netanyahu and given what we know that he consistently puts his own political and personal interests first, is the continuation of this war um, something that's actually in Israel's interest or is it in Netanyahu's interests?
0: I noticed, Dove, that uh, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Martin Indict, called for Netanyahu to resign.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the um, many, many uh, people in Israel have been making those demands. And it's really remarkable that that demand is being made by Israelis during the course of a war. You know, normally speaking, we, as political scientists, we talk about what's called the rally around the flag effect, we're in a country that war populations tend to support the government. That's waging the war. There tends to be this kind of unifying effect during the, uh, at least for the duration of the war. But in Israel, while there is strong public support for the war and a kind of rallying around the flag in that respect, at the same time, Israelis, many Israelis want Netanyahu gone as soon as possible.
0: So just in closing here in the last minute, the. No the objective on the part of the idf and netanyahu has been to eliminate hamas and my understanding is there's about 30,000 fighters and at this point i think they've killed maybe 10,000 or thereabouts so if you take that as the as the main metric then this thing could go on for another several months right to reach the point where they've eliminated hamas as a threat is that the metric through which this war is being conducted by Netanyahu and the idea?
1: Well, at least to, um, I mean, the goal to kind of eliminate it, its military wing or destroy its military wing inside the Gaza Strip and to, and to topple it from power. And I agree. I think the fact is that although Hamas has clearly been heavily hit over the last two months and have lost many of its fighters and senior commanders, it's still fighting two months into this war. Um, it still is apparently able to exercise um, some degree of command and control as we saw that it was able during the ceasefire um, during to uh, to impose a ceasefire to actually ensure that its fighters observe that ceasefire and so it still maintains some control and it still is able to fire rockets into Israel which really raises the question of you know how long it's going to take if it is indeed possible to defeat Hamas militarily inside the Gaza Strip how long will that take it could take the Israelis the same months and at what price is that going to mean for Palestinian civilians if we're already talking about 20,000 or so Palestinian as uh, killed, uh, how many more will die? What will be, um, you know, we're talking already about the spread of disease and hunger. Um, and so the, the impact upon this on the Palestinian civilians in Gaza is um, just enormous and almost unimaginable. Um, and I think it is gonna make it harder and harder for Israel to do this given the impact it's having upon Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, especially with winter approaching, things are going to get even worse in the months, in the in the weeks uh, to come. So I think there's going to be growing pressure on the Biden administration um, to, to call for a ceasefire, or at least to force the Israelis to dramatically um, scale down, their, 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 their uh, operations so that there would be much smaller units of kind of special forces operating in Gaza and not this major uh, ground offensive that's currently taking place.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Doha Waxman.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Dov Waxman, who's a professor and chair of Israel Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's also been a visiting fellow at Tel Aviv University, bar Ilan University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and Oxford University. And is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israeli Identity, Defending Defining the Nation, Israel's Palestinians, The Conflicts Within, Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what everyone needs to know. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into today's approval by Pope Francis of blessings for same-sex couples and divorced and remarried couples.
2: the b that's support not the president with government lane put me on a slow in parliamentary hacking bandwagon you can put me little ass in the grave every time you want it i'll be live bring a date i mean computer when it's over press save so you can, you can be, the, be president. the president i'd rather be
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joshua McElwee, who is the news editor of the National Catholic Reporter and their former Vatican correspondent. His reporting and feature writing has earned numerous awards from the Catholic Press Association of the U.S. and Canada, and he's been featured in Vatican Insider the Huffington Post, The Irish Catholic, The Official Catholic Directory, and is the author of 10 Things Pope Francis Wants You to Know About the Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua McElwee. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what are we to make of the Vatican giving conditional approval to blessing same-sex couples? It It doesn't seem entirely clear what this is about because it doesn't mean that... Gay couples can get married in in a Catholic church or go through a ceremony and have a priest bless. So tell me about what this involves, a blessing but not necessarily a marriage?
3: Yeah, it seems like a fairly monumental step. The Vatican's powerful doctrinal office put out a note this morning that they said had been approved by Pope Francis personally that allows Catholic priests around the world to offer blessings to same-sex couples, or to couples in what the church considers irregular unions. Those could be couples who have been divorced and gotten remarried without forsaking an annulment. And what it seems to allow is priests to offer blessings to those couples under the conditions that the blessings not be confused with the sacrament of matrimony or with a marriage ceremony, and that they kind of be done at the local level without kind of too much organization or too much preparation What it seems to allow is Francis saying to the priests around the world, you can take things uh, on a case-by-case basis, offer blessings, understanding that a request for blessing is a request for kind of God's help in your life, and it really seems to be opening a door here for same-sex couples, but also couples in, in situations that in the past have been even condemned by the church.
0: So could you describe how this would work in, in a practical sense? Because it's from what I understand is a priest could attend a same-sex couple wedding and bless the couple but not officiate at the wedding. Is that, is that the difference here?
3: Yeah. What the document appears to be saying is the Church still has its teaching in terms of the sacrament of marriage, which it considers to be between one man and one woman for life. Uh, But a priest could, uh, at a later point in a couple's life, perhaps after they've gotten a civil union or a marriage in in, in their local jurisdiction, they could go to the priest and ask the priest for a blessing on their lives or on the work they're undertaking or the the family they're building. The Vatican is asking that these ceremonies for blessings take place outside of a liturgical celebration and kind of in private with the priest— on a case-by-case basis. So we're not seeing a a situation where the Catholic Church would host kind of marriage or civil union ceremonies, but the Pope is allowing for priests kind of to use their good discretion and to offer blessings to couples who ask for them.
0: So I guess the same-sex couple aspect of this breaking news is overshadowing, is it, in any way, Joshua... What seems to be a bigger deal, and that is that divorced Catholics who have remarried, they can also get get a blessing, right? And That's something that hasn't happened before.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's been a a key sticking point for the Catholic Church for centuries. I mean, people will remember the founding of the Church of England and and the reasons for that. Um, What what Pope Francis seems to be doing is kind of recentering the conversation about asking for blessing or asking for God's help. You know, in the past, there'd been kind of a feeling that the Church was parceling out mercy or justice or kind of being very careful with how it treated this omnipotent being of God. What Francis is saying is that God is a an, uh, an incredibly welcoming, open, and wants to be involved in our lives. And he's telling priests around the world that when people come forward and ask for help or ask for a blessing in some sort, the priest should not say no. So it's almost kind of flipping the paradigm of how the Catholic church has been thought of in the past. And although, you know, in the case of a same sex couple or a couple who have gotten remarried after a divorce, they might not be able to have a formal marriage ceremony uh, in the Catholic church. They can at least ask for a blessing from the priest who would provide it as a sign of, kind of God working in their lives.
0: So in terms of the sort of war, if that's maybe too dramatic a description, but it seems that of late Pope Francis has sort of gotten impatient with the criticism he's getting from some of the more conservative uh, Catholic bishops here in the United States. When he recently fired... Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, and also has sort of rebuked, I guess, Cardinal Burke as well. What's going on in terms of that battle and how will this impact it? Because it seems that uh, this will just only widen the divide between a progressive pope and the more reactionary and conservative elements of the church that don't like what he's doing.
3: Yeah, I think what's going to be most interesting in coming days is to see how bishops in the U.S. in particular respond to this declaration from the Pope. The U.S. Bishops' Conference, the National Conference in Washington, put out a brief two-sentence statement, basically acknowledging what the Vatican had done today and clarifying, again, that allowing of a blessing was not allowing of of a marriage ceremony. It will be interesting to see if other bishops come out with different statements, perhaps being more welcoming of the of the pope's statement. Uh, in terms of how Francis has dealt with, you know, critics of his papacy, he's been pope now for 10 years. He's had a quite open and dialogical stance. He's favored kind of engaging with people and continuing conversations even when people are critical of him. In the two cases you cite, I think there are Uh, some substantial differences. Cardinal Burke is an American who had been serving in several Vatican high offices in Rome, uh, but who had also been quite critical of Francis. Uh, Francis had previously removed Cardinal Burke from all of his offices in Rome, but the Cardinal had continued to live in Rome and to criticize Francis from Rome. It appears Francis kind of said to the Cardinal, that's fine, you can do what you want to do, uh, but that doesn't mean you should still be receiving a Vatican salary. Uh, in the case of the Bishop in Texas, I think it's quite different. That was the case of Bishop Joseph Strickland in Tyler, Texas, who had been subject of an investigation really about his management in the diocese and whether or not you know he was m- leading that diocese well. and it appears that that investigation came to the conclusion that he was not and asked him to resign.
0: But he apparently has flirted with QAnon conspiracies. I'm talking about Strickland. He called uh, Francis a false pope and a usurper. He went against the COVID vaccine mandates of the church and said that you cannot be a Catholic and be a Democrat. So it sounds like he was fairly prominent in his opposition to this pope.
3: Yeah, Bishop Strickland had, I think, 140,000 followers on Twitter, which is more than the number of Catholics in his diocese. But he had been criticizing the Pope quite openly since 2018, when he endorsed the call of a controversial archbishop for the Pope to resign. And Francis had let him stay in post, had not moved against Bishop Strickland in any way, really, for five years. Um, Earlier this summer, our outlet National Catholic Reporter was able to report that Bishop Strickland had been subject to what is called an apostolic visitation. I think two bishops went to his diocese to talk to people uh, about what his leadership was like, uh, specifically about whether he was spending more time kind of on social media than he was leading his diocese and making sure things were going well on the ground. Uh, What uh, people who were involved in that investigation told us was the question that the bishops were asking about Bishop Strickland was whether or not his leadership of the diocese was salvageable. And clearly the responses they got apparently from persons in the diocese, including from persons who worked in the chancery office with Bishop Strickland, was that it, the situation was not no longer salvageable.
0: And what's happening with the Archbishop of New Orleans? Apparently there's, there's a lead article in The Guardian today that He's trying to get the victim of, who was an altar boy who was raped by a priest who is now serving a life sentence. He was trying to get some kind of relief for this priest in jail and trying to get the uh, the victim to cooperate. What do you know about that latest news?
3: I'm very sorry. I just have not followed that case, so I don't have anything I can say really.
0: Okay. But in general, you've been following this rift in the church here in the United States. Is it Are there enemies of the Pope in other countries, or is, it, is this a U.S. phenomenon? Well, I think
3: every Pope has, uh, you know, a Pope is the leader of approximately 1.3 billion Catholics around the world. Uh, you know, every Pope has Catholics who might disagree with certain decisions they make or certain documents they write or or their their general sense of the direction that they want to take the Catholic Church into the future. I think we see that in various countries around the world, although it does seem to be quite vocal and quite concentrated in the United States. Uh, We've seen that, uh, for example, at the US Catholic Bishops meetings in Baltimore. They happen once a year. We had a meeting this November. and strikingly, you know, Pope Francis has hosted what he has called the Synod of Bishops. It's a huge meeting of Catholic bishops that took place last October to to discuss uh, some of the huge issues facing the Catholic Church in really for generations to come. And the U.S. bishops, when they had their meeting, had a very brief discussion about Pope Francis' Synod, and you certainly did not get the sense that people in the room were wanting to be enthusiastic or wanting to kind of push along Pope Francis's agenda for reform of the Catholic Church.
0: So just back to the announcement from the Vatican, which is certainly a surprise and a a real turnaround from 2021 when the Catholic Church said it could not bless same-sex couples as God, quote, does not bless sin. So that was 2021. So two years later, there's been this change. You were saying... Earlier, Joshua, that this is quite significant, quite tectonic. Just put it in that context, if you will, what this really means. Because as we know, some time back, Pope Francis said, in response to a question about gay priests, said, who am I to judge? Mm.
3: I think we can say that Pope Francis, on this area in particular, of welcoming and ministering to LGBTQ Catholics, has really made massive strides this year, Uh, At the beginning of the year, he called for countries that that were still criminalizing homosexuality to decriminalize homosexuality. Uh, A few months ago, the same office that issued this new declaration issued a similar declaration stating that trans Catholics um, can be baptized and can even serve as godparents. And now we have this latest declaration allowing for blessings of same-sex couples this follows a letter from the Pope himself that mentioned this possibility or opened up to this possibility at the beginning of October. So it does seem that in the past year, especially Pope Francis, has decided to kind of move forward a bit on this issue. I would say maybe to open the door ajar and to and to make clear that the Catholic Church is welcome and open to everyone.
0: But just in closing, though, it seems that the other aspect of what was announced today may even be more important in the sense that there's so many divorced and remarried Catholics who have been excluded by the Church, but now, with this new directive about same-sex couple blessings, the divorced and remarried Catholics can now also get blessed, right? Isn't that a, a big deal?
3: I, I think it can be an enormous deal, especially for Catholics in their local Parishes. I think Francis is kind of recentering these conversations away from the Vatican, away from the National Bishops Conference, and to kind of where he, I think he believes it should be, which is between a, a priest, a pastor, and the couple. You know that they, that that priest or pastor knows and and has a relationship with. Um, in 2015, Pope Francis kind of opened the door a little bit on allowing for divorced Catholics to remarry, um, but I think this, this opens it a bit more and, and and at least shows openness to understanding God at work in complicated situations in the world.
0: Well, Joshua McElwee, I thank you very much for joining us here today and, and explaining uh, what has happened today in terms of, of this massive shift in Catholic doctrine.
3: Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Joshua McElwee, who is the news editor of the National Catholic Reporter and their former Vatican correspondent. His reporting and feature writing has earned numerous awards from the Catholic Press Association of the United States and Canada. And he's been featured in Vatican Insider, the Huffington Post, the Irish Catholic, the official Catholic directory. And he's the author of 10 Things Pope Francis Wants You to Know About the Family. (laughs) We can take a brief station break and back assessing what kind of deal Biden can make with the Republicans who are holding hostage money for Ukraine while demanding changes in border policies that will anger the Democratic base and erode Latino support.
2: I will beg God to send you to hell. hell. Down Mexico Way, that's where they fell in love when stars above came out to play.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aaron Reichland melnick who's Policy Director at the American Immigration Council, where he directs the Council's administrative and legislative advocacy efforts and works on border and immigration court issues. And he has an article at The Hill, Trump 2.0, a second term would see him pick more and uglier fights on immigration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Reichland melnick Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, on Saturday, former President Trump made some of the most ugliest remarks. I mean, he's been on a tear channeling Adolf Hitler, but this time it was just so blatant uh, Where he talked about how immigrants are poisoning the blood of America straight out of Mein Kampf as, as it happens. So when you say we're heading into an uglier period if he's re-elected, he'll basically do all the things that he tried to do in the last term, which were outrageous. But this time around, he's better prepared to do it, isn't he?
4: I think the Trump administration learned as they went along the first time around. Um, In 2017, we didn't see a huge number of immigration policies uh, other than the infamous Muslim ban. Um, By 2018, he had expanded to uh, the uh, family separation policy. But by 2019, there were, and 2020, there were new policies coming every couple of months as the administration really tightened its grip on power and learned how to operate the levers of Washington, D.C. So we expect that in a second term, that would take uh, a lot less time for them to get back up to speed.
0: But this time around, with people like Stephen Miller whispering all kinds of poisonous ideas in Trump's head, and not that. Trump's not disposed to the ugliest and cruelest ideas. I mean, we're talking about concentration camps. We're talking about deporting millions and millions of people who have been here for decades and have families, etc., getting rid of birthright, citizenship, you name it. He's going to go to war on immigrants, and and he's saying it's not just Central and South American immigrants. It's immigrants from Africa and Asia. I mean, he's against the whole world.
4: Yeah, and I think that's certainly what he's been saying. I do think, of course, while uh, there is a lot that the president can do, it's always important to keep in mind that um, Mr. Trump is, uh, shall we say, a man of bluster. Quite a lot of what he is saying he's going to do now, some some are things that he promised the first time around. In 2016, on the campaign trail, he said, by the time I'm done, I'll have deported all 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. And quite obviously, that did not happen. And when we look at things like stripping people of birthright citizenship, certainly they say that that's something that they can do. But the U.S. Constitution could not be clear that that would be completely impermissible. And I think even the conservative Supreme Court would block him from doing that.
0: So why is he saying it then? If he's saying this as bluster, there must be an audience for this. There is. And unfortunately, we are
4: seeing growing anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States. Um, We've seen a lot of people inflaming uh, attitudes against immigrants and migrants and really conflating those two together. And I think it has led to a situation where you've seen um, politicians consider some of the harshest anti-immigrant laws in decades in exchange for Ukraine funding, which is currently negotiations ongoing in Washington, D.C.,
0: So let's talk about those negotiations. As far as I know, the House has basically gone into recess, just abandoning the issue, and the Senate is trying to hammer out a deal. What's the latest on that? Well, um, the
4: latest is that the negotiators said over the weekend that they were going to have a framework together to make a deal. That didn't end up happening. And now uh, one of the key negotiators, uh, Republican Senator Lankford, Uh, came out yesterday and he said, I think this is going to be pushed back into early January. While the Democratic negotiators haven't come out and said the same thing, at this point, the possibility of a vote before Christmas or the New Year's is seeming vanishingly vanishingly small. So while it's still possible that a deal could be reached, um, it's not likely to happen in the next couple of weeks.
0: So too bad for Ukraine. We, We need to go on vacation. That's more important
4: yeah, and unfortunately, you know the real and serious need to support our allies in Ukraine has been taken hostage by the Republicans' demands to tie this unrelated issue of the u s Mexico border and the u s. asylum system to supporting Ukraine. Now, the Republican base has become increasingly hostile to Ukraine as a lot of propaganda and uh, actions have been taken to sort of diminish support for um, helping out our allies there. But uh, at the same time, that's allowed the Republican Party to essentially tie this unrelated issue of border funding to Ukraine funding. So right now, it is seeming increasingly unlikely that unless there is some kind of deal, that Ukraine funding may not even happen at all. If deal, if negotiations break down we could well see the United States simply fail to provide any further support through Congress.
0: But isn't the Ukraine aid also tied in with aid to Israel and Taiwan?
4: That's right, Uh, though there has been talk that there could be a separate funding bill for aid to Israel because that's a lot more popular um, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, So it's unclear at this moment, though, when this is going to happen. Um, This question of, of emergency funding has been being debate has been debated in washington now for more than a month and no one can reach a deal as of yet we could see if border negotiations break down completely as they still may we could see these issues splinter apart and uh, new deals try to be made in order to get funding for these uh, other causes but right now there is no sign that the congress is going to pass any kind of support before they leave town for the holidays
0: so, but tying the border into Ukraine and Israel, etc., it seems like a a real damaging play that the Republicans clearly are relishing to hurt the Democrats and particular Biden. I mean, we have you know, there's no question that polarization in this country is just poisonous. And in terms of Ukraine, it's pretty obvious that the Republicans won't let. Ukraine have a win because they see that as as Biden having a win. So they punish Ukraine because they want to punish Biden. That seems to be the mentality here. And they found a really good weapon with the border because if Biden compromises, which apparently he's willing to do, then the Democratic left and, you know, particularly the Latino vote, or at least the liberal Latino vote, will be outraged. Already you have the Arab-American vote going against him because Biden's sticking with Netanyahu. So if he he agrees to any of these punitive border proposals on the part of the Republicans, then isn't that going to hurt him with the the Democratic left?
4: We've already seen a number of progressive senators and members of Congress come out in opposition to making any kind of deal that trades Ukraine for uh, the most uh, harsh anti-immigrant enforcement bill in nearly 30 years. So I think the answer is is it quite uh, obviously could. Of course, we don't know what a deal might end up looking like, but so far the policies that have been discussed include things that are very seriously opposed by uh, the majority of Democrats, including a complete ban on asylum for people who come to the US-Mexico border, a mass expansion of detention, um, a new legal authority to essentially shut the border to asylum at any point, uh, and expansion of interior enforcement, you know, sending ICE into communities around the United States to go after the people that have um, made it past border officials. Uh, and so I think that has a serious uh, risk for the president. Is If this actually does get passed, it's unlikely to draw independents and conservatives who are already opposed to what the Biden administration has been doing and it has the potential to really turn off a lot of Democrats and progressives as well.
0: And how much is a part of this, these re- requirements on the part of the Republicans? I know about, you mentioned getting rid of asylum and, and reinstating the remain in Mexico policy, etc. But what about building the wall? I mean, Trump, uh, the, just the other day, said he'd be a dictator only on day 1 but he would build a wall and drill 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 so is there any demand to put money in this border package to build a wall
4: right now there isn't uh that is not a major topic of negotiations and i think that's in part because there's a, a widespread acknowledgement that building a wall is not going to resolve any of these fundamental underlying issues Um, And there's a very obvious reason for that. Um, Well, actually a couple. First, you can simply cut through the wall. And we're seeing this right now in Arizona, where um, thousands of migrants are turning themselves in, where uh, cartel smugglers cut through the wall very easily. It takes about 15 minutes with a uh, tool that you can get at Home Depot. And then the other issue is that for about 800 miles of the US-Mexico border is along the Rio Grande River. And there, the border wall has to be built about half a mile onto U.S. soil because otherwise it could wash away in a flood. And as a result, even if you covered every inch of that with border wall, by the time people cross the border and walk up to the wall, they're already half a mile into the U.S. uh, land and they already have a right to apply for asylum that applies even if they're on the wrong side of the wall.
0: Right, but it's never mattered that it's practical or realistic or doable. I mean, remember Trump said that Mexico is going to pay for it, but he hasn't paid a price, has he? He keeps it up, as I say. Just recently, he said, "On day one, I'll be a dictator and we'll build the wall." Yeah, and
4: and I think you know the Trump administration spent around fifteen billion dollars. Um, some of it uh, approved by Congress, and some of it essentially. Uh, taken away from the Department of Defense and from other sources, where he could essentially raid the coffers of uh, a few money pools sitting around in the government in order to build wall. And none of that really had any major impact on the border. Hundreds of miles of new and uh, upgraded wall were built under his campaign, and that did little. Um, and I think, in part, we see uh, w- one of the reasons you know that this is not part of the negotiations right now is because the negotiators understand that the wall has become uh, more of a symbol than anything, and that Democrats do not want to cave on this issue. That said, the House of Representatives, including Speaker Johnson and others, have called for any negotiations to include restarting wall construction.
0: So in other words, they'd rather waste money on the wall than give money to Ukraine that's desperately defending itself against a Russian invasion.
4: Uh, certainly what they say is, why should we be spending our money on Ukraine when we have an invasion at our southern border? And my response to that is always to simply say it's just completely inappropriate to, to compare those two issues. You know, you don't have a hostile foreign nation invading the United States, shooting cruise missiles at us, bombing us, killing our civilians. It is migration. Obviously, it's a high levels of migration. But at its core, this is migration that has occurred at the southern border for generations. It's
0: not an invasion. Well, there certainly has been an uptick in waves of emigrants coming largely from Venezuela and from Cuba and from the Central American countries. And now, of course, there was an effort early in the Biden administration that Kamala Harris was put in charge of, which is to try and make life more livable for people in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala in particular. And there's actually been a change of government for the better in Honduras and the change of government for the better in Guatemala, but now the reactionaries and crooks and tied in with the drug cartels of the military in Guatemala are trying to stop the new president who was democratically elected from taking office. So how are we doing on that, going to the source? I mean, what can you do about Venezuela? What can you do about Cuba?
4: Well, when it comes to Venezuela, we've seen the Biden administration actually start to relax sanctions on Venezuela in exchange for more deportations. Uh, A couple of months ago, the United States began deporting people to Venezuela for the first time in years. And we've seen migration once again tend to override nearly every other concern that the United States has with nations in the Western Hemisphere. And Of course, none of these are solving the underlying reasons that people are choosing to migrate. There are right now we see a very uh, much a mixed flow of migrants coming to the border. There are many migrants who fit the classic profile of asylum seekers, political dissonance, people fleeing violence, LGBT individuals. Those who have clear winnable claims, and we also see a lot more people coming uh, who are classic economic migrants who just want the American dream, a chance to work and survive and thrive, and you know support their families back home. But the issue is, is determining who is who: who is the asylum seeker and who is simply the economic migrant. And there, this is a question of resources. We've spent years pouring billions of dollars into things like border walls and agents and everything like that and only giving a trickle of funding to the adjudication side of things. So as of today, um, the immigration court backlog is now over 3 million cases. The average asylum application is now taking nearly four years to be heard, uh, and many people will end up waiting five, six, seven years to get a yes or no answer on their claims. To me, that's the core problem.
0: So where will they wait, though, Aaron? Will they wait in detention centers here or in Mexico?
4: Well, there are simply not enough detention centers in the United States to detain everyone. This has been the reality forever. At no point has the United States ever had the capacity to detain every migrant crossing the border. It's simply impossible. Uh, Right now, there are about 37,000 people held in ICE detention centers. That's less than a week of people who cross the border. And that gives you some sense of this, the lo- very real logistical struggles that I've had here. And so, of course, the real answer was go back in time and start funding these resources a long time ago. But right now, um, I think you're seeing a lot of people uh, simply just get fed up and say, let's toss the baby out with the bathwater. And, and I, I think that's sort of the easy but wrong solution, because I don't think that's actually going to fix the underlying problems here, which are largely resource-based. Uh, as to where people are going to go, that is a very difficult question. Most migrants crossing still have friends and family that they stay with. There's a sort of false idea that everyone crossing is going to just end up in New York City in a shelter somewhere. That's not the case. Most people actually do have somewhere to go. Um, Nevertheless, the number of people who are arriving at our borders without anywhere to go has increased dramatically over the last 18 months and has Um, caused a lot of strain on local resources. And to me, the answer is for Congress to help support those local governments so that this doesn't fall on local municipal budgets and instead to treat this like the national issue it is. Unfortunately, with the Congress we have today, that's really hard to get them to make any kind of agreement like that.
0: So just in closing, one of the answers that's always been staring us in the face is actually having a more open border with the ability for people to come and go emigrants from Mexico, which have been the longest and greatest number of people over the decades, many, and if not most, would prefer to go back to Mexico and just, you know, we have this sort of garrison mentality when there are other more creative ways to do it, aren't there?
4: Yeah, and I think what's so troubling about the current negotiations is that they are refusing to talk through these alternatives. Um, they are basically only about cracking down. But if you just crack down without doing any of these alternatives, without solving any of these underlying issues, the crackdown isn't going to work. It, it will in, have a small short-term effect. You know, There will be a period of wait and see when migrants you re know, uh, reevaluate what the new state of the border looks like, and then people are going to start crossing again because you haven't solved any of these underlying issues. And meanwhile, you have now 11 million people, uh, the average undocumented immigrant um, as of 2021, had been in the United States for more than 15 years. Most of these are long-term residents. Many of them have family, many of them have children here or are married to U.S. citizens. But because of laws that we passed in the 1980s and 1990s, they're effectively trapped here. If they ever want to have a chance of coming back, they can't ever leave. And we've seen that that's one of the problems of when you pass these harsh laws is people end up not leaving because they understand that they'll never be allowed back.
0: Right. Well, that's what I say. I wasn't suggesting open borders in the way that the Republicans use it as a pejorative. But, you know, if you had, rather than have to have people trapped here and then have to use high coyotes and get involved with organized crime, if you had borders that people, you know, checkpoints that people could go in and out of. That would make so much more sense than this sort of, again, this kind of garrison mentality that we have to just wall off the southern border and keep the hordes out, which is unfortunately something that's metastasized into the consciousness of so many Americans. It seems the hostilities out there, Trump's not doing this alone. There's an audience for it, isn't there?
4: I mean, it's important to, you know, think of this in historical context. We have been here before, especially in the 1990s. Um, California passed sweeping anti-undocumented immigrant restrictions. Um, The Clinton administration in 1996 uh, passed one of the through Congress, one of the harshest anti-immigrant laws ever passed, which is the current law that's still on the books. Um, And that was at a time when there were also millions of undocumented immigrants coming to the United States every year. Um, None of those had any major immediate effect on migration. Um, Any impact really didn't kick in until eight or nine years later. And crucially, the backlash against undocumented immigrants led to, in many ways, California becoming the uh, democratic state it is today, it sort of accelerated the political transition of California from a more conservative state to a more liberal state as Latino immigrants felt that they were being sacrificed uh, and, and attacked. So we could see that again if we see yet another wave of immigration restrictions. There might be some short-term benefit for the restrictionists, but it could ultimately cause the kind of backlash that we saw in California years ago. But then again, you know, it's a very different world today than it is back then. So it's very hard to take a look at what happened in the 90s and draw a direct one-to-one comparison to today.
0: But the bottom line is just in closing, though, Aaron, is that the harsh punitive crackdown approach, as you say, doesn't work, hasn't worked and will not work. Whereas a more enlightened approach, which we really haven't tried, is, is much more likely to work, right?
4: What I often say is the one thing we haven't tried in the last 10 years is making the asylum system work, giving it the resources it needs, figuring out how to make it streamlined, getting people lawyers, and and basically helping ensure that people are not having to wait six months to a year. And of course, many people will lose their cases and they will get deported. But if we actually have a fair system that can determine who qualifies and who does not, I think that will eventually reduce the incentives that people have to cross the border if they don't have claims, if it is like understood what the process is. Uh, and at the same time, of course, we just have to acknowledge that we've tried over and over and over for the last 50 years to stop migration and have so far not had a, any major success other than the years after the Great Recession when the U.S. labor market cratered for nearly you know, a decade. Once that was over, we're the strongest, most powerful economy in the world. People want to come here. And we're also the safest nation currently for anyone in the Western Hemisphere. So people want to come here for a reason.
0: Well, Aaron, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Aaron Reichland-Melnick, who's the policy director at the American Immigration Council, where he directs the council's administrative and legislative advocacy efforts and works on border and immigration court issues. And he has an article at the Hill, Trump 2.0, a second term would see him pick more and uglier fights on immigration. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green.